0: And Welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow, Benjamin Wittes, conducts a joint interview with William McCants about his book, The ISIS Apocalypse, The History, Strategy, and Doomsday Vision of the Islamic State, and with Joby Warwick, about his book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. It was recorded on October 21st,
1: 2015.
2: So, yeah, this is a, 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 the first event in what, what we mean to be a monthly series. Uh, Jack Goldsmith and I observed recently that uh, there were just a, a very large volume now of really serious books coming out in the national security space, some of them legally themed, some of them not, but themed um, on matters that people who are serious about the legal side of national security uh, have to know about. And so we decided to have a kind of, uh, we're calling them kind of book soirees, right, where we, you know, get people together and we have a serious conversation about serious books. And so it's a, it's a particular delight to uh, lead this off with a topic as grim as the one we're going to deal with today, which uh, involves beheadings um, and, um, and bloodthirsty calls for more beheadings. Um, from, uh, these are really two very extraordinary books. Um, at one, and it's particularly uh, you know, neat for me because these are actually, it's a, a former colleague and a current colleague who have written them. Um, So I, I, since you all have the books, I'm going to be relatively limited in what I say in advance, but uh, these are very different works on a very similar subject, Uh, and they're, I think in my judgment, entirely complementary books, that is, uh, Joby Warwick has written a, a Kind of gripping narrative history uh, focused on the early years of the ISIS development, um, and specifically specifically focused on on the Zarqawi era um, of ISIS uh, when it was before it was called ISIS. Um, and um, for those of you who don't know, Joby, he's a reporter at the Washington Post. He's the previously the author of a um, what I think is one of the most Sort of five, maybe three most remarkable books on in the post-9/11 era. The Triple Agent, which is uh, we'll we'll talk about its relationship to this book over the course of this conversation. Um, and he's just uh, ha- has a remarkable narrative voice in this in this whole area. And then we're also going to talk about. Uh, this book, which is a book that I have been waiting for for a number of years. And the reason that I've been waiting for it, um, and I actually didn't know Will was working on it. Will is a current colleague at, at Brookings. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that everybody thinks when they see one of these ISIS videos is, oh my God, what are these people thinking? And you know, this is so vile, so sick, who could think this? And so Will, is it fair to say at heart you're basically a medieval Islamic historian?
1: Yes, very yeah. fair. Um,
2: so Will is you know, he's an unusual Washington policy person in that he's most sort of at home with um, a set of texts that you wouldn't normally think of as you know, driving current Washington policy. And it turns out that if you want to understand ISIS, that set of skills, the ability to kind of go through, um, uh, the ability to go through current statements and figure out how they interact with and don't really interact with but sort of interact with ancient uh, Islamic sources is actually a critical component of the conversation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, before I forget, Will is a, is a senior fellow at, at, at Brookings, um, where, where I am as well. So let's just start, let's just jump into it and not have me blather for any length of time. Joby, you start the book um, with, or relatively early in the book, with an incredible account of one of the Jordanian... Uh, um, service uh, intelligence people first encounter and a doctor's first encounter with Zarqawi back long before ISIS. Um, What is it about this guy that makes him plausible as a, he's not educated, he's not, uh, doesn't seem especially smart or thoughtful, uh, and yet, he has this amazing command of people uh, that enables him to su- essentially supplant Al Qaeda. As mm. tell that story, how how does it happen?
0: Mm. So, so first of all, let me just say thank you for for allowing me to be here. This is really a great opportunity. I love the fact that these uh, book talks will be done over cocktails, which I think is a, is a great, great uh, benefit to the program. Critical big <laughs> time. <laughs> in uh Also have to thank my my friend Will for for. Uh, letting me kind of run in his shadow here over the last few weeks. (laughs) Will and I just met for the first time about two years ago, just as I was getting started. That's right. And we had, you know, I was so thrilled and amazed by all the the knowledge this guy had in his head and just was excited to get started on the road thinking about Sarkawi. But we also found out we're both minister's kids, which is probably the most incredible bonding thing you can have (laughs) with another human being because we instantly know all the ins and outs of what that that upbringing is like. But uh, I just... Really great to, to, to be here on the panel with you, and so yeah, let us just to to paint a picture for for you, which you'll get to as you start to read the book. But it's there's this moment uh, in 1999, uh, 1998 actually it begins, where um, Jordan has this really troublesome group of prisoners that are so bad, they're so hard to control, they, they're so there's such a, a virulence about them, and and there's a fear that this contagion will spread to other prisoners. They actually decided to pluck them out of the general population and put them in this old prison that had been abandoned for years that had essentially been closed down because it had such a horrible reputation. But they brought 50 of these men, stuck them in this place, and just warehoused them there, hoping that this big problem would go away. And what, what you have in this environment, it becomes kind of a jihadist university with Zarqawi and his sidekick, this guy Makdisi, who's just uh, sort of uh, a writer and a cleric and someone who has some serious uh, academic credentials. The two of them together run these 50 men, and you have kind of this interesting combination of, of the scholar, the kind of thoughtful, A guy who has credentials and can issue fatwas if he wants to. And you have this other man, Zarqawi, who's kind of a man of the people, a man of the street, a guy who had been a thug and a gangster and a drinker, had tattoos on his arms, looked anything but, you know, part of a religious uh, jihadist. But he was the one that among this group of prisoners, people who had been, uh, you know, criminals and been, you know, just you know, tough guys, uneducated. He was the one that was inspiring because of his charisma, because of his willingness to do anything, to, to get the job done. And so he develops his core following in this prison in, 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 uh, in uh, Jafar Jordan that kind of follows him through Afghanistan into into Iraq, later into his life. And it's, it's this moment uh, that described in the book is, is uh, all these guys sitting together, all these jihadists, looking at him. You know, waiting for his instructions, and, jo- and and Jokowi doesn't even have to open his mouth. He commands them with his eyes. Tells them to get up, to do things, just with a look, and people obey. So that's the that's the, the sort of the first introduction to this character that the book is about.
2: And do you have a, a a sense of? I mean, you sort of depict it in the book of what is it about this guy that, despite what you would think, you would, you know, and would be debilitating deficiencies. He does not have uh, a trained. He's not trained as an Islamic scholar. He's not actually a military guy. Um, what is it about him that makes him ultimately so effective? Mm. It's partly ruthlessness, yeah. right? But
0: and there is. I think ruthlessness is actually a key because here's someone that doesn't fuss too much about what the Quran says you can or can't do. What the innovation with Sir Kawi was, is that if, if I say it's OK to have suicide bombings and to kill innocent women and children as part of it, you know I can find ways to justify it. I don't really have to have um, someone bless it. I don't have to find the Quran verse that, that's going to match up with it. So he's, he's talking to men who are fairly simple, who don't have a great grasp of the Quran, And he can essentially, by force of will and just by his own just the power of his arguments, say that this is okay to do and you have to follow me, this is Allah's will and, and it doesn't get challenged. People go along and say, well, this sounds great to me. Yeah. So Will, we um, there's always this debate
2: when ISIS does something awful or for that matter when Al-Qaeda does something awful and the debate runs something like this in its crude form. This is a perversion of Islam. Know it represents Islam. Know it uh, it has nothing to do with Islam. No, it's the embodiment of Islam, right? And you, there seems to me to be an embedded argument in your book that, or maybe, maybe it's pretty overt, that you have to take these ideas seriously as a form, a, 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 as a set of Islamic mm-hmm. ideas. Um, So I want to start with a very crude question. When ISIS does something awful, to what extent should you and to what extent should you not think of it as Islam?
1: So ISIS comes out of a tradition of Islam that goes back to the eighth century. So it's almost as old as Islam itself. It's a very puritanical (laughs) tradition. uh, And it's a very rough form of Islam. Uh, You find it uh, reborn in 18th century Arabia as the Wahhabi movement. Um, And the Wahhabi movement is very similar to what you see in ISIS today. They have basically the same theology, they have the same approach to law, uh, and they have a similar hypersectarian identity. They mounted the same kind of insurgency we're seeing today and they governed brutally. ISIS comes out of this tradition. It is extremely close to the kind of Islam you find in Saudi Arabia. And as a matter of fact, when they needed textbooks to distribute in Raqqa, which is their de facto capital, they distributed Saudi textbooks. Uh, not that the Saudis gave it to them, they're available online, but it just goes to show that there's a, there's a very close affinity uh, between those two traditions. When they do something that is shocking to the conscience, um, sometimes uh, they do it to demonstrate uh, that they are being more faithful to scripture than Saudi or other ultra-conservative states, because this is their core audience, right? They claim to be reviving ultra-conservative values and approach to Islam, and they want to demonstrate that by using these horrific acts and then proving that it's there in scripture. But interestingly, sometimes they also do things uh, that go against scripture, blatantly. Um, And I'll give you the the best example of this is the burning of the Jordanian pilot. goes explicitly against Islamic scripture, which says in several places, uh, no human is allowed to burn another for apostasy, which is what they said uh, this Jordanian pilot was. You're not allowed to burn another human. And yet they did it. And these are people who claim to be hypertextualist. But one of the reasons they did it, other than to attract eyeballs, to deter the Jordanian government, to punish them for airstrikes, one of the reasons they did it was precisely because it invited religious controversy. And it was yet another opportunity for them to demonstrate their scholarly bona fides and their dexterity in interpreting the text.
2: And is there, are there scholarly bona fides real and are they, I mean, are, is their textual interpretation serious or, or are these simply thugs playing at, you know, intellectual you know capability? What,
1: so, you know, what's fascinating listening to Joby at talking about the man who was really the ideological founder of the Islamic t- State, although he didn't live to see it and then looking at the man who currently runs it. They have two very different backgrounds, but they come to the same place. right? You have Zarqawi, who is this street thug turned uh, religious militant. You have Baghdadi, who is an honest-to-God religious scholar, has a PhD in Quranic studies from a real university. He is hyper-educated in Islamic tradition. Yet both of them come to this very... Um, brutal understanding of the text and how to wage an insurgency and and govern. Uh, There is an interesting document uh, from the early 2000s called the management of savagery, which is a document that's very popular with the Islamic State. And in it you can find the justification for this brutal interpretation of strategy. And that justification is you should be faithful to Islamic scripture only insofar as it helps your political project. But if your enemy is more ruthless than you are, and the Islamic strictures on warfare are too confining, you are allowed, Islamically, they would argue, to circumvent the scripture. So whether you have a theological and a sophisticated jurisprudential interpretation, or Zarqawi's very rough I say it, therefore it is. Now find the justification. Either way, it gets you to the same place, which is they believe it is better to be feared than to be loved. It's much more politically useful.
2: Winning is the highest command.
1: Exactly. Mm
2: -hmm. So, all right. So take us through that evolution, right? You go from a street thug who shouldn't be able to uh, amass this kind of religious following who does, Mm -hmm. to, uh, and you see a lot of continuity between that and a religious scholar who can proclaim himself the caliph and have, um, uh, you know, sort of continuity and rule. How does that happen? How do they persuade, this is sort of for both of you, how do they persuade large numbers of people to follow this, it seems like a remarkably disreputable project to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and part of it, seems, You know, I, the drug dealer, say, mm-hmm. let's go build the caliphate. Mm-hmm. I, I'm,
0: I think part of it with Zarqawi is a reflection of this personality, who is someone who's, you know, when he starts out, he can barely read the Quran. And in prison, one of his projects is to get better at at just being able to speak the language, proper Arabic, classical Arabic, and also just memorizing the Quran, which he spent a great deal of time doing. So he tries to make himself into kind of a, uh, you know, at least someone who's literate and able to understand the references. People who were around him at the time were, were marveling at how at the beginning he he wouldn't even speak at meetings because he was so afraid he had things wrong to being someone who could correct you you know if you if you said something you misspoke uh, you know on, on some uh, you know some some principle or some passage from the Quran so he was self-taught in that sense but he also just gained confidence as he Develop this following. I think he saw his, his own this this the sense of his own destiny, and that he, he, Allah must be favoring him. Thus, I'm you know I've got the right idea, and it, it sort of became a self-fulfilling thing with him. And later on, you see him you know, very boldly you know, you know you know telling his old uh, mentor Makdisi to just mind your own business. You know what I'm doing with suicide bombers is okay, and and I would give you the site and the scholar who says it's okay, but he's, he's in prison, I'm not supposed to give his name. So he just essentially ignored the rules after a while and just just through his own, just through audace, audacity, was able to convince people that he was, knew what he was talking about and people went along with him.
1: And I think this is key. And this runs through uh, like a bright line through the whole history of the Islamic State is its audacity. Jihadists are used to speaking the language of weakness. The West is so strong, we are so weak, we cannot possibly reestablish the caliphate. We will try and try, but it's generations of struggle to come. Mm -hmm. Zarqawi and his successors spoke the language of strength, even when it was absurd to do so. They proclaimed the Islamic State in 2006 when they controlled no territory. And they were beaten to a pulp in 2006. 7, 2008, and yet kept promising, we will make a comeback. It was a consistent message of strength. It was almost a field of dreams type approach. They kept willing it into existence. And I think for many of the younger generation, that was attractive, especially when it started to become a reality with the Syrian civil war and they began to take territory on the ground and then victory bred success more recruits more money
2: so this is a really interesting it brings me to a major theme that shows up differently in both of your books which is the conflict between you know the the new kids on the block ISIS and the old style mainline jihadists you know whom we call Al-Qaeda but who seem like Real wusses compared to these guys, um, and so I want to. I want to. You know, this is to me. I think the most jarring thing in 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 both books. It shows up in different ways, but just the appalled reaction of these guys, who we think are kind of ruthless killers and nothing else, to the activity of of ISIS. Um, I'm. Interested from, from your point of view, Joby, in you know, how that tension developed, but in Will's case, really what were the fundamental ideas that mm-hmm. separated them such that they end up you know, representing different factions mm-hmm. in Syria, that they you know, expel each other and, um, and really regard each other as quite dangerous ideological threats mm-hmm. to one another?
0: Yeah, there's this, I think, a surprising narrative thread in, in, that, you know, in, in my book, and I know that in, in some extent in, in Will's too, this, you know, is Zarqawi going to be part of Al-Qaeda or is he not going to be part of Al-Qaeda? Initially, he wants to be, because when he goes to Afghanistan as a, as a young man being newly sprung from prison in, in 1999, goes to, ends up in, 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 essentially at Osama bin Laden's doorstep and say, you know, I want to join this movement. Uh, Bin Laden's folks didn't want anything to do with him because they, they they knew about this hothead who didn't take orders well. He had his own crazy ideas, and so they stuck him way off in the corner, and, and you know in Harat, it's where right. far from anything that they were doing, and said, okay, you can have your own training camp out there, but we're, you're not part of us. We're not part of you, and so that was that was where Zarqawi was stuck for a long time. When he moves into into Iraq, the insurgency starts. He's being successful. He again reaches out to Bin Laden and says, "Look, we could have a, a nice little collaboration here. Want you? You know, I'm willing for you to be the leader. We're just going to be. We'll be the kind of your faithful vanguard, and you you're, you're the boss. You know, let us let us."
2: And, and let me just interrupt you there. Was he being sincere at that moment, or did he? I mean, I know this is speculative. Or. Do you think that was a he thought of himself at that point as somebody who was going to go work for bin Laden and represent him in Iraq? Or was he merely trying to get the Al Qaeda, you know, brand to work with and then he was going to do his own thing?
0: I think it was more the latter. I think he was more interested in having the legitimacy that that you know in, uh, among Islamists uh, of having the al-, al-, al Qaeda brand, and so he, he sort of humbly comes to Bin Laden and says, "Well, let me let's let's kind of work together." And Bin Laden, as far as we know, d- never replies. Mm-hmm. And only years later, I guess it's it's uh, it's more than a year later when when Bin Laden sees his remarkable success that this guy's having. Bin Laden stuck in Iraq and Afghanistan, he he really is. You know, he's barely able to, to influence events beyond putting out his, his videos. And here's this young guy in, in Iraq that's getting things done. So he offers this opportunity to work together and then quickly sours on it because is doing so many horrible things. Uh, you know, they have to try to rein him in. So first, Sawahiri writes to, to, to Zarqawi and says, you know, please stop, you know, cutting people's heads off. Please stop killing Muslims. And in sense essentially just ignores it and continues to do what he wants to do. And that rift that you see developing in 2005, 2006 is the same one essentially that's the dividing al-Qaeda proper, al-Qaeda central, and, uh, and ISIS today.
2: And do you think, uh, maybe this question is, is better directed to Will, but one of the things that, you know, with David Petraeus suggesting that there may be elements of Nusra that we can work with, which is, you know, five years ago, a completely unthinkable statement for a, a former U.S. official. Do you think this has had a moderating effect on some elements of more traditional Al Qaeda, or, or is, or is the idea that we could ever work with, you know, certain reconcilable elements of Nusra simply a fantastical show of our current desperation?
1: Is that coming to me or Joby? Either one. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the fundamental difference between Al-Qaeda Central and the Islamic State is exactly as Joby said. It was, it was on this question of how much brutality can you use towards normal civilians, particularly Sunni civilians, but also Shia. And from the beginning, Bin Laden and Zawahri were very wary of Zarqawi because he had a sectarian streak in his uh, jihadism that was absent in theirs. Um, And they were very concerned, but as Joby says, when the war began in Iraq, they had no assets on the ground and they wanted to acquire it. So there was a marriage of convenience between them that they quickly came to regret. Because al-Qaeda's head is always strategically focused on winning over a broad segment of the Muslim population to their cause. They talk the hearts and minds language. They use the phrase hearts and minds in their internal memos. They want to win over broad-based support for their project. And we're not used to thinking of them in this way because when they talk about the infidel, they're not thinking in that It's not me- our hearts and minds. No, no, they want to cut them out. They're not worried about winning them over. But in the Muslim world, they're far more discriminating and discerning. They wanted to wage a hearts and minds campaign. The Islamic State, beginning with Zarqawi and running through all of their leadership, deeply disagreed with that proposition. They disagreed with the idea that you need majority support in order to achieve your political objectives. They argued, on the contrary, you need to achieve your objectives by scaring the hell out of everyone. And you do that through rough violence. And then you will be successful. If you look at the early history of the Islamic State and bin Laden's reaction to it, bin Laden and Zawahiri, for good reason, thought they had the right of it because here's an organization that seemed to have destroyed itself with its own brutality. Um, and for a number of the other affiliates, they saw it as an object lesson in what not to do. But the, the, the complication today of that story is the fact that the Islamic State has been so wildly successful Mm -hmm. using the same basic formula. So now it raises a question in the jihadist community, who has the right of it? So you have the Nusra guys, as you say, who have lined up with the hearts and minds stuff of the Al-Qaeda, classical Al-Qaeda leadership, wanting to work with the rebels, trying to limit... Uh, the death of Sunni civilians, and you have the Islamic State going in the exact opposite direction. And if you're going to compare, who's been more politically successful? You would have to say the Islamic State.
2: Mm-hmm. So, well, there's a, there's another in your book, another cleavage that you describe in considerable depth, which is the the theological proximity that the two movements believe that we are in relative to the caliphate Mm -hmm. with one sort of saying you know create islamic governed spaces and the caliphate will sort of take care of itself later and the other having a great deal more theological immediacy Mm -hmm. and one of the i thought really interesting elements in your discussion is as you go through al-qaeda's efforts to kind of create the conditions for the caliphate in a variety of places without actually proclaiming it. And you talk about Mali, and you Mm -hmm. talk about um, Yemen, and you talk about, you know, uh, and then failure after failure after failure. Um, And the comparative advantage in simply a kind of field of dreams, Mm -hmm. hey, build Mm -hmm. it now and kill enough people and people will embrace it. Is, are these issues the same issue or is there are these two distinct you know, cleavages between the two movements?
1: I think they're related because it has to do with timing and the sustainability of their political project. And the political project is state building. And so ISIS's proposition is you do state building immediately You get there by scaring the hell out of the people. Al-Qaeda Central's proposition is you do it gradually by winning over the people to your side. What's fascinating is when the Islamic State fails in its project the first time around, and it is defeated in 2009, um, it's the Al-Qaeda affiliates who take up its flag and also its political project. They start to do state building, and they get letter after letter from bin Laden Zawahiri saying, don't do it don't do it. We just saw this. It was a catastrophe. Stay focused on the United States. Don't do the state building. And the affiliates, as you say, didn't listen. And they begin to build states. And and there's some fascinating, fascinating letters from bin Laden where he's giving his reasons for why not to do it. One, the Americans are still here. They're still strong. We're not strong enough to overthrow local governments. But also, Arabs, he argued, have outsized expectations of what the state is supposed to do because of either their socialist history or because they're rentier states. We can't possibly deliver these things to them. Mm -hmm. We should not be setting up governments just yet. Um, But it doesn't matter because all of them are defeated ultimately because they provoke powerful outside nations to intervene. So they're never able to complete the experiment and decide were we too faithful to the Al-Qaeda vision, or should we have followed the Islamic State's game plan? And,
2: and do you think that question is largely decided now in favor of the Islamic State? I mean, imagine, imagine the Isra- Islamic State gets rolled back tomorrow um, and heads toward collapse. Has the demonstration project of what they've already managed to do been such that al-Qaeda looks hopelessly unambitious at this point or will that serve to validate the more sort of cautious approach that al-Qaeda takes?
1: I think it ends up splitting the jihadist community. They won't be able to decide because global jihadists have this is the problem that they have. Um, When they engage in state building projects they focus on the local stuff they still have the global rhetoric of the global jihadists. In other words, they're threatening the United States. They're threatening France. They are inviting foreign invasions. So they are never able to complete the experiment on the ground and decide if, was it a failure in our political vision or did we just make too many enemies? And I think the same thing is gonna happen when the Islamic State goes down. There will be some who say, That was a success and we just need to be even more brutal the next time. But there's going to be the Nusra guys that are going to say, ah, see, we told you. But it was really the foreign intervention that foiled their state building projects, not anything that they were doing by governing.
0: It's interesting, in addition to this this conversation that's going on at high levels, so I think ISIS clearly wins the hearts and minds of the of the little guys that want to fight mm-hmm. this jihad. And you see this time and time again. Who's who's the inspirational figure? Is it is it Bin Laden or is it Zar- Zarqawi? There's this guy named uh, Robert Fowler, a Canadian uh, diplomat, who was kidnapped in Niger in 19 I think sorry 2008. And says after Zarqawi was dead, but he was held captive for 180 days by these this jihadist group. Every night, they would watch videos. They would talk about what's going on in various parts of the world. And he, he said that they didn't really care about bin Laden, who was this old man with a dyed beard, sitting behind a TV, giving these ponderous sermons. The guy they wanted to be was Zarqawi. They wanted mm. to be like him. And I think that's to the extent that, you know, these foot soldiers win the argument. that I think they're clearly on, on the side of, of ISIS and on the side of the guys that, that provoke and get things done. And, to the, and,
2: and today... Is it Baghdadi who inspires them, or is it still Zarqawi? I mean, is this a is this a myth of the fallen leader kind of thing, or is this Baghdadi himself is it electric and exciting? I think I mean, he's a pretty ponderous guy. He is. He,
1: he is he is a ponderous guy, and I and I do think Joby is right when they are trying to model themselves after a warrior. It is not Baghdadi that they are looking to; it is still Zarqawi that they look to. Hmm.
2: So, Joby, I want to talk about an element of your book that I think is, it's actually an element of both of your books in this space. Um, You are remarkably well-sourced in a place that I think not a lot of American journalists get a lot of information, which is Jordanian intelligence. And one of the incredible things about both of these books, um, Triple Agent and, and Black Flags, is just how richly reported Richly, you report um, what Jordanian intelligence knew, what they did, how they planned things, and so I'm, you know, I've been a reporter for a long time myself. I'm not sure I've ever spent any time with Jordanian intelligence officials. How did you come to be (laughs) uh, the sort of of like, you know? I mean, how did this come about? And mm-hmm. I, I just talk a little bit about how how that how that influenced the writing of yeah. these two books.
0: Is this microphone on? I just... <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's one of the, the the most amazing kind of strokes of good fortune that I've had in my career. I covered intelligence community for for several years for The Post, and as part of you know, covering the CIA and covering the other US intelligence agencies, I would often meet some of their counterparts from some of these other agencies and in, in, ended up spending quite a bit of time in the Middle East and particularly in Jordan, where I had some introductions and people who agreed to talk to me because I knew this guy or that guy. And, and from something as simple as that, just building relationships and over time reporting on stories that yeah maybe i got it right they thought and th- this guy's trustworthy we'll bring him back in for briefings so i ended up taking you know fairly regular trips to jordan Sitting down in the Mukhabarat, which I must tell you, they don't talk to a lot of journalists, including in their own countries. I just felt incredibly privileged to be able to sit down and have these guys be fairly frank about what they saw going on in the region. Because they thought it was important for American audiences to know what they're facing. And if if I was going to tell the story accurately and fairly, they were willing to talk to me. And so when it came time to do these bigger projects, and um, particularly this last one, I've been working with some of these people for for seven, eight years, and they they trusted that if they told me something off the record, I wouldn't use it. If I said I wouldn't use someone's name, I wouldn't use it. And so they ended up being remarkably open because on this story in particular, sort of this progress of this movement that they've been fighting, they've been grappling with now for years. This is not some new thing for them. They felt that they had been just sabotage time and time again. They did sort of warned the United States, go into Iraq, you're gonna create this huge problem, it's gonna it's gonna come back to get us all. Please don't do it. And of course of course the US went on and invaded Iraq. They've had you know years of similar warnings about Syria, how this this, this security vacuum was, was forming and it's all you know. The, the worst elements are moving in here. They're going to be in our neighborhood. They're going to destabilize the region. And so they're they're like hair on fire, alarmed about what was going on. And they were actually in the end fairly you know happy to, to have me sit, you know, in their office and go over for sometimes hours and hours at a time some of this the, the minute detail about how some of these some of these things went down and what they saw as as the future threat. And,
2: and what, what when you I mean we don't generally think of. Middle Eastern intelligence services as sort of like the nicest bunch of guys in the world. Um, our intelligence services have a lot of respect for the Jordanians as a professionalism matter. In in my experience, what was what's your sort of aggregate impression of them? It's not a democratic country, but Absolutely. it's but it's a it's a fairly Proficient and professional intelligence service. How should we understand who these people are?
0: Well, two two things to share. There's uh, the the nickname for the the intelligence service in Jordan, which is the Mukhabarat. Uh, colloquially, uh, colloquially among locals, is uh, the fingernail factory. I think that's it's a bit of a it's it's an old description. It doesn't it's not entirely apt now. I think they've reformed a bit, but this is a place where. Uh, you know, the security service Jordan was not afraid of doing whatever it took to achieve what they felt they needed to achieve to protect the kingdom. And so they have been absolutely ruthless, there's no question about it. And some of the people I met, I mean, I, one of my best sources for this book that appears <coughs> throughout the entire narrative is someone who sat down with Zarqawi and sat down with Maktizi and, and all these others, and I know he wasn't very nice to them. I mean, I, I, he would tell me about uh, encounters he had with, with suspected terrorists, within hours, he was able to break them and get full confessions and then bring them back to the crime scene and have them kind of retell the story. So he was somebody that knew how to get things out of people very quickly. And, and even just sitting with him in a room, you sort of get the sense this is not somebody that you mess around with. But on the other hand, they, they are passionate in telling their story. They feel like that they, in a way, have the most to lose. if, you know, if Other than Israel, there's no country that the, the ISIS folks would love to wipe out more quickly than Jordan. They're absolutely on the front line, and they mm-hmm. and they're, you know, they're alarmed, and they 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 were very happy to tell their story about you know their views.
2: So, well, one of the things about your book that I think is most different from everything else that's been written is just the degree of engagement with text. Mm. You know, sort of taking taking ideas <laughs> seriously as ideas and seeing where they lead you. What are are the ideas that people most misunderstand about this movement? And what are the ideas that are most salient to the movement that people don't notice at all? As in, if you say, say, hey, it's worth investing energy in understanding what these people think Mm -hmm. and what they think they're doing, what are we getting wrong about that and what are we not noticing that they think that, is, that we really should be noticing?
1: I guess, given the title of the book, the apocalyptic stuff mm. looms quite large. And it looms large because it's unusual for Sunni jihadist movements. I and mean, we might tend to think that all religious movements uh, of an extreme sort have an apocalyptic element, but, but they don't. And in the Sunni world, it's actually pretty unusual to have a group that is actively using apocalyptic prophecies of the end times to recruit people, and it's unusual for them to be taking military decisions based on those texts. So
2: break break that down. What, What do they believe is going to happen and when, and what military decisions are they taking on the basis of that?
1: So here's the fascinating thing about the Islamic State's apocalypticism. It has shifted over time. The first incarnation of the Islamic State in 2006 was founded by a man, Abu Ayyub al-Masri, who succeeded Zarqawi, um, who was behaving according to an apocalyptic timetable. And we know this because one of his chief judges in the Islamic State had a falling out with him and writes a letter to al-Qaeda's leaders explaining what's been going on. And this apocalyptic stuff looms large. And he says this Masri fellow, had established the state in 2006 because he believed the Muslim savior or Mahdi was going to come at any moment and that he was making battlefield decisions based on his belief that they were going to take the whole country of Iraq in just a matter of weeks before this uh, uh, messianic figure appeared. He nearly ruined the group because of it in combination with the other bad decisions that they were taking. And I think the early Islamic State was chastened by this. And over time, what you see in their propaganda, and it escapes notice unless you're really looking for it, you can see that their style of apocalypticism shifts. And it shifts away from the appearance of a savior as a fulfillment of prophecy to the appearance of the caliphate as, an, as the fulfillment of prophecy. And what that does for the organization is it, put, it makes everybody much more focused on a more stable political project, right? Because a, a state building's more stable than a messiah figure who can appear at any moment and really upset the apple cart. They're focused on state building, and at the same time they maintain what scholars call the apocalyptic moment. They maintain this heightened expectation that's so great for recruitment. And so it's it's an unknown. Uh, uh, it's unknown today whether the, apocaly- uh, the Islamic State's leaders still really believe this stuff, but they are certainly using it to recruit.
2: Normally, when when you talk about a movement as really apoc- apocalyptic, it implies a certain brittleness because you can't maintain that fervor forever. You either moderate or people say wait a minute what gives you've been telling me the 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 end times was coming 30 seconds from now you know for 30 years i'm bored um and you know the great awakenings peter out the um you know and so does this imply to you a certain brittleness of the movement or is this a or should we expect it at some level to moderate? That seems implausible. Or should we, uh, or, or, or is there some reason to assume it's going to be sort of more resilient than apocalyptic movements normally are?
1: It's, it's going to be more resilient. Because if you look at the medieval precedent for a number of these apocalyptic groups in the Muslim world, um, many of them, when their apocalypticism shifts and becomes more focused on state building as a fulfillment of prophecy. A number of them became the great empires in medieval Islam, and their apocalypticism fades over time as the state becomes durable. Yeah.
0: On the other hand, they've actually been pretty successful in their predictions so far. Mm. And Zarqali, what's remarkable thing about him was in, in uh, you know, 2005 and 2006, he was saying, we're lighting the spark here in Iraq, but the real battle is going to be in Syria, and there's going to be this great showdown between Western and, and Islamic forces in this town of Dabiq, which is this sort of almost a, an Armageddon sort of place in Syria. So he was forecasting you know, years earlier that there was mm-hmm. great showdown was coming. And if you're a you know, young volunteer with ISIS now, it seems like there's these echoes of what, what's happening right now with the Russians coming in, you know, you know, these, all these forces arrayed against the Islamic State. It's, it's, it's this moment coming true for Mm -hmm. them, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, we can, let's, let's wrap up. And what we're going to do is we're going to be a little atypical. We're going to save questions for mingling personally (laughs) with, with, with the authors over, over drinks. Um, But I mean, let me, you know, close with a question to both of you. You both, you tell very different stories. Um, what's the lesson for the future from each of your stories? I mean, when, 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 you, when you look forward based on everything you've written about, I mean, I, in my office the other day, you mentioned that you thought ISIS people were underestimating Baghdadi as a leader and that his killing if and when it happens would have a big impact on the organization. Mm. But I, I'm interested, as you look forward, what's the lesson of the story that you've told for how we should think about the movement there? And also, you know, you, Joby, you know, th- there's some horrifying lesson of Zarqawi. What is it?
1: Mm. I guess, I guess for me, it was to see, it was, it was two things. One is the, the power of an idea. Um, uh, you know, you, if you're trained as a historian, as I am, you become a little bit skeptical of ideas driving history, that it's more about deeper structural issues. But with the Islamic State, you can see clearly that there is one single animating idea that fires their imagination, the immediate establishment of God's kingdom on earth, and they pursue it come hell or high water. And when the political context shifts, all of a sudden it's an idea whose day has come. I guess the the second thing I would say is that I had to see something, a hard truth that I was unwilling to accept when I started writing the book. And that was that you can be brutal and you can be terrible to people, but you can still be politically successful and establish an enduring state. And that was a really hard thing personally for me to come to grips with.
0: I think for me that the lesson that comes out of this repeatedly is how dangerous it is to allow stateless areas to exist where these kinds of people can can take charge. And they, they certainly saw an opportunity in Iraq. It wasn't just the, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but it was the fact that the government was dismantled. The Baathists were sent packing. They no longer got their pensions, so there were these dif- disaffected people on the street. The army was sent home. And here was a, here was a perfect environment for Zarqawi to move into and, and, and just create mayhem. Same happened with, in Syria with the aftermath of the Arab Spring. It, and you can see in these lawless areas around the world, it's... It is an ideal situation for these people to move into. And they're ready to do it, and it's just... It's, it's, if there's a danger for us moving forward, it's, it's allowing these places to exist. Even if we have to tolerate some really unsavory regimes in order to, to prevent these, these kinds of lawless areas to, to, from, from propping up, it's just... It's, it's, it's almost a necessary evil, I think. So I... I... I,
2: I, I hope my admiration for both of these books has come, forward, uh, has come through. But I, I, I do want to say, you know, explicitly, I, I really recommend them both extremely highly. Um, and uh, please enjoy hors d'oeuvres and drinks. And uh, we, the authors, have put a lot on the table to chat about. And don't be shy.
0: Mm.
2: Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Podcasts from the Hoover
1: Institution. Please visit Hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.
2: I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.